Hello and welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins, our horticultural advisor. For the next 30 minutes, we'll be talking about organic growing, giving you tips and advice. This month, we discuss summer maintenance, those gentle jobs which allow you to keep on top of your growing area while at the same time enjoying the fruits of summer. And if you're planning to go away on holiday, Chris and I help you to prepare your plants for while you're away. Our interview this month is with the author of a book on climate change gardening, a subject very much of our time. And we finish with the postbag questions on gooseberry bush pruning, flowers for bees, and whether you can use old tyres for planting in. It's the summer month of July, so sit back and enjoy the chat. So Chris, here we are in July, and we thought we'd never get here. <laughs> June was so busy in the garden and in the growing area, but July, I kind of get the feeling you can take your foot off the pedal a bit. It always feels like the brow of the hill a little bit to me, because you're kind of really intensely gardening with the seed sowing in the spring, and then everything starts to grow at once, and you're battling everything, and then you kind of get everything up and established. So it does feel like the brow of the hill a bit. And I mean, I was on my allotment. I like to go to my allotment quite late. There was nobody there the other night, just me and the birds. I'm in a city of 11 million people and I'm on my own, you know, with a bit of nature and growing some food. And I think it really hits home then why you make the effort, why you go to all that trouble. The rewards are very, very handsome. It's also magical, isn't it? With time to enjoy your growing area, to sit and enjoy it, whether it's with a beer, a cup of tea, yeah. listening to the cricket. You yeah, it's a great one to listen to the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right. But July is also, for me, quite a lot of what I call RM, which is routine mm. maintenance. And so it's things like keeping up with the weeding, keeping up with the watering, all that sort of thing. I think you've got to be careful not to take your foot off the pedal completely. Yes. Hopefully you're in control. But I think, I think weed's quite important because... I mean, I don't mind certain plants as long as they're not growing right amongst stuff. I don't want Danny Lodge in amongst my runner beans up to the side, no problem. But you need to remember that expression weed before they seed. You have a plant like chickweed, which is a four week life cycle. If you're not paying attention to that and just pulling them up and drying them out in the sun, you'll have a lot more of them. So you need to just keep an eye on things, make sure it doesn't drift away from you. And also, it's, you know, we go through periods of dry. I know it's been a bit wet. The end of June, it was a bit wet. But now I think just be careful, it gets hot. You need to keep an eye on your irrigation. Yeah, and with the weeding, I know we've mentioned this before. In fact, we probably mention it every month, don't we? But with the weeding, if you take out your annual weeds, throw them on the compost yes. heap. Their yeah. foliage is fine, even their little root systems. It's not a problem. If you've got big perennial weeds, like dock, like thistle, then cut off the foliage, put that on the compost heap, but the roots themselves you're going to have to dig out. Yeah. And then destroy whichever way you like, whether you drown them or you mash them They're up. not for the compost bin, basically, because you'll end up replacing, putting them back eventually, exactly. won't you? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And also remember to mix your compost up a bit. I've actually, um, it's funny, you, you know, you get like, some nouns will get junk mail. I always like to shred everything. And those shreds are great for mixing the browns and the greens. Particularly so. if you're putting a lot of lawn mowings on. Yes, because exactly. Because lawn mowings yeah. will slump, won't they, into yes. that nasty green And so you, yeah, and you don't want it to go all sort of anaerobic. So if you keep those mix those 50-50 really, browns and greens together, keep the air going through it, it means your compost breaks down quicker. Another bit of routine maintenance, of course, is cutting back. So things like I have a lot of chives in my garden. If you cut them back after they've flowered... It's magical. Within a week, you've got new growth. So yes. you can keep your chives going through the season. You can also do it with some of your herbaceous things like geranium, herbaceous geraniums. You can cut them back, get a second flush. 
it's quite easy when you start seeing things tire a bit a nice haircut will rejuvenate them and pinching out I pinch out my basil plants they're nice and thick and bushy as a result yeah tomatoes I've been pinching out my tomatoes especially my, the, the cherry ones I've got hanging baskets on my balcony I pinch them out they bush quite nicely when you say you pinch them out you're taking out the side shoots I take out the side also the top one has been quite I take out the tips as well so I just want them to produce more laterals basically unlike a, a tomato that you tress is it Trust, trust, sorry, I beg your pardon, trust. Yes. <laughs> Not like tight you trust, the small cherry ones are kind of very bushy and you can get a lot more lot more fruit on them. Yeah, yeah. And then if you're picking, which we hope you are, you're harvesting your fruit and your veg, a tip about thinning carrots I read the other day, which I really loved. As we know, the carrot fly is very attracted to the centre of the It's a fairy bone, isn't it, that gives, that's given exactly. off, apparently, yeah. So one of the tips is to thin your carrots or pull your carrots in the evening when it's not windy, and then with any luck, the carrot fly, which isn't usually around in the evening, won't be attracted to your carrots. But I heard another tip, which was to crush mint leaves mm. under, under your feet or in your hand as you're pulling up those carrots. Again... I don't know if it works or not. We've never actually tested that one, but why not try it? Well, I think mint's quite a powerful smell, so there's no reason why it shouldn't disguise. Like you say, I don't think it's, we can't say it's scientific, but uh, mint's a nice plant. You might want to bury it in a pot so it doesn't spread everywhere, but it's a nice plant and, and use that as a bit of companion plant. In it. And also remember our philosophy that we want to see our growing areas full. We don't want to see that bare soil because that reduces our watering, helps keep the weed down. So you want a nice varied, mixed um, a garden to keep everything balanced. Now, something that I have, which I doubt you have on your balcony, is a lot of apple trees. No, I can't fit one on there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the process of apple thinning at the moment. And this is when you get a bunch of apples on your branch and you think, what, fantastic. Actually, if you leave them, you're going to get a bunch of very small apples. Small and sour, season. aren't they, if you don't think Well, they're just small and yeah. lovely worth keeping. So you've got to be cruel to be kind, in a sense. Take out the weak ones, the smaller ones, and just leave maybe two, maximum three, but preferably just two fruits. They will then get all the strength from the plant to grow bigger, to get the sun, and to sweeten. And do you do this with a pair of tweezers or a pair of snips? No, no, you, or can, do it, you can do it by hand. Just it's pinching a, with your fingernails? Pinching with your fingernails. Just make sure you don't damage the actual stem itself, but just lift off that weak, diseased apple. Now, there's a really nice little video about this on the Garden Organic YouTube video. So, if you're into YouTube, go into Garden Organic and you'll see apple thinning. I think it sounds like a nice, relaxing way to spend a morning to me, really. Bonding with your apple trees. Well, this is what July is all about. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing, of course, is that you may well be planning to go on holiday. Yep, that's right. It's that time of year, isn't it? <laughs> and what are you going to do with your plants in your growing area when you go? One of the things I do with a balcony, which is obviously a much bigger problem because you've got a limited space and I'm south facing and boy does it dry out. So last time I went, I used a couple of tricks. I would get, I'd recycle old um, water bottles and I would remove the lid and then I would probably bound in about five or six, maybe seven layers of cling film with an elastic band around that and then pinprick with a pin. And then you fill that with water, you cut the other end off, fill that with water, and you put it in, and it gently leaks out into the soil. That's one method I use. So you prick through the cling, through the cling film. So if you imagine. And the bottle itself. No, because you've lost oh. the lid. The lid. So where the lid would be. Yes. You then, so instead of a lid, you have seven layers or six or seven layers of cling film, as tight as you can over that lid area, held on with an elastic band, and you cut the top off the other end, the fat end, 
and then you water into that and it seeps into the soil. So ah, you place so it like in the base of the plant. Yes, yeah. You can plant. actually buy taps um, and fit them onto water bottles. They're available if you didn't want to go to all that trouble. The other thing that's quite important is I have a lot of house plants. So all the small vulnerable ones all go in the bath with a nice bit of water and that keeps them alive for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I have a very kind neighbour. So when I go away on holiday or when he goes away on holiday, what we've got into the habit of doing is gathering all our pots that are scattered around the garden, putting them together in a shady place, and then it makes it so much easier if you're then doing the watering for mm. your neighbour. Everything there is one in one place. Um, I think the key thing on the allotment or in the flower bed or vegetable bed, the mantra that I have is weed, water, mulch. Yeah, mulching is very, very so useful. Get rid yeah. of the weeds if you can because they're going to take up that valuable water while you're away. They're going to deprive your plants. If you Then water and water deep. Yeah. Don't just do a little sprinkling. Go really, really deep. And then the soil should, if your soil's in good nick, it should hold that water. Mm. And then finally, put a mulch down. Now, this could either be your grass cuttings from the lawn or any green cuttings that you've taken, something that will cover the soil yeah. and stop the transpiration and losing the moisture. Perfect. So that's weed, water, mulch. Yeah, that's good. Good one, good, good one to remember that. And don't forget to pick everything before you go. Anything that's ripe or about to be ripe, it's ready to go in the freezer or to make jam of or whatever. Mm. And the other thing, of course, is sweet peas. I have a great, lovely, great... I can't get through a summer without growing sweet yeah. peas. And again, pick as many of those flowers as you can. So you can use them as a cut flower, like a big... Yes, yeah. but the point about picking them is that it'll, it'll encourage them More to go flower. on flowering. Yeah. Because once the, pe the flower sets into a pea pod... The plant will think. Well, so basically, is you're, you're talking about deadheading, basically. Then, exactly. I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same yeah. with roses, of course. Yes. So you want a perpetual right. flower, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, to help perpetually flower. Great. All right. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> okay. Well, now we'll we'll um, turn to your interview this month, and I have to say, this amused me. This interview. You met Kim Stoddart. I did, and well, yeah, it was a really nice interview. I really enjoyed doing it. Well, the point was to talk about her book on climate change gardening, which is very of the moment. We've had perhaps the wettest June on records, and we're about to go into a very hot July but what I love about this interview is how you spark off each other. It was a really enjoyable chat you know we you know when two gardeners get together we are very kindred spirits in a way you have that you bond quite heavily over your passions it's a passionate subject you can't be a gardener without passion the two worlds wouldn't wouldn't mix and I think that as I chatted away to her that becomes more apparent I think you've got two people who, who love to do what they do. Well I hope the listeners enjoy listening to it as much I as I I hope so too. Okay, so I'm here with Kim Stobart, who has joined Garden Organic as the editor of Organic Way. Is that right, Kim? That's right, yes. And welcome. Uh, are you Thank enjoying you. it so far? I love working with Garden Organic. It's a charity that I've admired for a number of years and also written about as well with the other writing I did for The Guardian yeah. and so forth in the back. But no, I'm so pleased to be part of the team. That's, you live in Wales. We're in Cardiff at the moment. How did you come to live in Wales or is it? Or you been here forever? Um, I've been here for almost 10 years and I, I'm from Brighton originally oh. and I um, wanted to move somewhere in the countryside, I wanted to live somewhere rural, I wanted to 
have a stab at being more self-sufficient and it's just Wales just I just fell in love with Wales it just saw the small holding and it just had everything we wanted though basically it's a complete wildlife haven it's beautiful part of the countryside beautiful so you've kind of wait so you've left the urban life but I'm from Brighton yes. and I know it's quite a full-on town in many it ways is quite isn't it? Yeah, town, yeah. Yes. it's a good way to describe it so you so tell me about the gardens you've got yeah. there because you grow a lot of food don't you I do, yeah. I mean, I first, um, I first got into gardening really um, as a teenager. Just I've always had this connection with wildlife mm. and with nature. And as a teenager, that wasn't necessarily something that was encouraged by anybody in my family. It's just something I wanted to do. And I can first remember actually um, getting a packet of carrot seeds and just thinking, I'm just going to grow some carrots and just throwing them on the ground. Mm. And it took a while um, because I didn't know what I was doing, but eventually they grew. And th but there's always been this connection. Yeah, and brilliant. So in a little way, you've hit the nail on the head for me as, as well as about the fact you take nature, you take natural cycles and you put it into your growing techniques. Absolutely. So, so how important organic garden is to you then? It's just what I've always done. Mm. I've, I've never gardened any other way because nothing else makes sense. Mm. So it's um it's just I've never I've just it's just for me it's just the natural way of doing things and it's the most sensible way of doing things and also about increasingly over the years as well I've just built up the connection I've tried really hard for example to wear gardening gloves yeah. try so hard um, and obviously if you're pruning and things like that it's a sensible thing to do but for me it's very much about the connection yep. with the soil with the plants and actually how you can actually understand how things are working which just makes you feel good yes certainly yeah. makes you feel really good and for me as well um when i was running my companies in brighton this was just it's therapeutic gardening yeah. i love it just having that you know getting that close to nature mm. and growing produce that you can then eat and put on the table is good for the soul yeah it's amazing it's funny you know the years i've been doing it which is a long time now i I went down my allotment on, th on uh, last week and I still have that feeling you just described, that kind of, um, yeah. you go into a certain place and it's all meditative in a way, isn't it? You it kind is. of, yeah, and you it really, and, I, and you said about gloves, it's yes. funny, in 35 yeah. years I've never worn gloves in gardening. <laughs> I need to, you can't feel what you're doing almost, you no. feel like there's a barrier up there, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, look at my hands, but I don't Yeah, so we've got, if you, yeah, we, yeah, it's, we're, both, we're all both calloused and, uh, and muddy nailed here, yeah, the genuine article <laughs> I'd say. So you have a social enterprise called Green Rocket. Tell me a little bit about that. My youngest son, Arthur, who's 10, is yeah. autistic. Ah. And um, I've entered the world of understanding about difference and autism. And it's um, really enriched my life to a point where he's the inspiration for the social enterprise. Brilliant. So what we do is we work with... Um, a variety of people of different ages with difference, I, I prefer the word difference rather than disability, Yes. and um, just to use therapeutic gardening to help them. So I'm working with a group at the moment, yeah. um, aged sort of 16 to 30, and we're using the garden almost like for emotional regulation, yeah. and then we're looking at what their, their interests are, and we're trying to build on those interests. So it's kind of therapeutic gardening, meet social enterprise yeah that's it's, brilliant it's a really enriching thing to do yeah. how we laugh yeah as yeah. well this is the thing almost from the off we've just had such fun you do get giggles well. yeah we do this is it there's lots of laughter and merriment yeah. i've um i've been really fortunate to work with autistic um children myself it's one of the most amazing things i've done and for a simple reason really is that they live in the moment there's no agenda with them and I've, there's a purity right. to being around them that i there found right. and uh, and i i remember work one little lad down in uh, kent and, it, and i got him planting tomatoes yeah. and every time he planted a tomato and you went, dunna, they planted it, dunna, and I just there's that kind of natural joy about it. But yeah. they really do respond to, to horticulture, to gardening, don't they? Yeah, yeah nature yeah. doesn't judge, does it? No, exactly. We're all okay. on the same page with it, and that's it why it's such yeah. a powerful subject. Yeah, it's I a shame. Shame more people don't understand that in some ways, yeah. And I think a lot of the time as well, the expectations are set very low, that when you have a diagnosis of some type of condition, 
almost not very much is expected of you. But, you know, nature doesn't judge. And nature yeah. isn't full of straight lines. Nature's yep. full of curves mm. and colour and variety. And it's just, a, for so many different reasons, it's a really good space. Right, Kim, I know you've got a book out on climate change, um, on, on climate change gardening, to be more accurate. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, it was, I've, I've written about climate change gardening for a few years now. And I um, had a meeting with Sally Morgan, who edits Soil Association magazine, because yeah. we both have a lot of experience in this area. And we just felt very much that there was a desperate need for a book of this kind to help gardeners prepare for the more extreme uh, sort of weather variable future. It's about very straightforward actions that you can take as well to actually weatherproof your garden. So, because yeah. we've had a lot of gardeners saying to us, you know, feeling very fearful, yeah. particularly after the heat wave last year. Um, and also where I live in, in the wild west of Wales, yeah. I think I'm quite fairly front line to the actual changes that are taking place. I live 700 foot above sea level in a very exposed spot. And we've, we've experienced great extremes of weather, um, even more so. Um, we actually, Ceredigion was actually the hottest place in the UK. Wow. In February, 21 degrees in February. In February, in totally. You can't ignore this, can you, really? No, it is happening. Yeah. It's one of those things that it's very easy to think, um, you know, almost put your head in the sand, because it is scary. The key thing is that basically it's about working with nature. It's about working with nature, right, rather than trying to meticulously control mm. it that will actually help in the gardening context. And so how do you begin something like that? Do you break it down into sections of what, what your challenges would be, like floods, uh, drive, wind? Do you break it into those sort of sections? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And both Sally and I are full, full of ideas. Yeah. So, you, so you would have tips on that then? Say if you were yes. in an area in, like in Lincolnshire at the moment that's suffering from yeah. flooding, etc. Would you have some core tips? Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there's sort of lots around this. Um, and my garden, actually, I mentioned my garden flooded. This is probably a good way of sort of bringing this alive yes. as well because yep. I live in the countryside and um, surrounded by farmers and the field um, immediately behind the gardens it's been it's been on slope but it before it was used for livestock grazing and then what they did is they ploughed the field over and they grew crops on it see before the field held the water really well because it was full of grass. Um, and the grass has got roots that are going to actually hold. And it absorbs all that moisture, yeah. It absorbs the moisture. It's, you know, sort of natural resilience against an excess of rain. We obviously had a lot of rain, but all, equally what happened is suddenly all the water came running down the field because no longer, there was no longer grass there to hold it. And it flooded my gardens to the extent where the vegetables were actually rotting in the ground. So if I explain what I did with that, that probably helped. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. The main thing is at the back of the garden, actually creating creating as much protection as possible. So lots of soft fruit bushes yep. and also trees, um, fruit trees. But actually they act as a first line of defence and they actually help to soak up excess moisture um, and also keeping the grass long at the back of the garden so it's very very wild long grass is able to absorb a lot more water as well um, and then i changed transformed the um the outside veg patch into a raised bed system so i've got gravel pathways that actually lead around the outside of the raised beds yep. because the membrane underneath is porous so it enables the water to actually slowly just filter. So you're not away. getting puddling or trapped water, no, right? No, it was there was so much mud. <laughs> yeah. It was outrageous. I've experienced mud, but I've never experienced anything like this. Completely unworkable. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was devastating. Yeah, it's de devastating. You've come up with some cracking yeah. ideas to solve it, and, yeah. and this is then you've not had problems with it since then. No. So tree line, soft fruit, yes. and then long grass. You're creating a barrier between the, the larger uh, ecosystem Absolutely. and your ecosystem. And raised beds are good as well because. 
although the soil can dry out more quickly yeah. when you get conversely get a heat wave, there, although there are things you can do to help with that, it actually means that the roots of the plants are actually raised above the ground. So it means that if you do have a problem with flooding... They're not going to drown, basically. The other thing with that is that there's a real issue with soil erosion over winter as well. With an excess of winter rain, mm. the nutrients can be leached out of the soil. Yeah. So using, using systems like no-dig, um, also using lots of ground cover, actually help provide protection over winter. Even letting some weeds grow, none of yeah. those weeds grow, well, is better for binding soil. As a gardener, I don't want to yeah. see soil. It's the most important thing to me, but I don't want to see it. This is it. Yeah, because if you, if you no. can see soil, that's weed, that's watering. They're Absolutely. two jobs you have to do. So the, I yeah. would say rule one of organic gardeners, fill yes. your beds, fill Absolutely. your borders. Yeah, yeah. So you just touched on something then, I'm quite interested, yeah. to throw it completely the other okay, way. Yes. What about doing stuff for, yeah. if people are in dry, arid situations? What you said again about the ground cover is, is really important as well, because Last summer, um, it obviously we had what six, seven weeks. Yes, of really, rain. really nice weather. Yeah, no rain. It was, yeah, you know, yeah. Certainly, it was very enjoyable. There's no doubt about that. But it wasn't that, good plant weather. <laughs> it wasn't good plant weather, no. Um, and the other thing that happened as well is that um, for the first time ever since being there in ten years, the water supply actually ran dry. So um, I had I had very very little water. Yeah. So what I had to do was use these techniques that I've been talking about and push them to the limit. So in the polytunnels, I was only able to water once a week. Yeah. In the midst of the heat. Wave. If you're growing lettuce and stuff, that's yeah. so that's a problem, isn't it? If you're growing soft crops and. So the main thing with that, obviously, soil organic gardening is all about the soil, the soil, the soil. Yeah. Um. So just with the extra hungry plants after watering, I put mulch around. Yes. So I'd mulch around the extra hungry plants. And when I watered, rather than just doing, obviously watering in the morning or yeah. later on in the evening when it's cooler, but rather than just giving them a small water, I'd water deep water. much longer deep Yeah, water. deep watering, yeah. So then the water's actually able to permeate much further down in the ground and it can stay there for longer. And the mm. fact that you're using ground cover actually means the soil won't grow up, dry out as quickly. Mm. So it's, I was actually amazed. How, what a difference well it made. Really, that is really interesting because, you yeah. know what, since as a gardener, people think watering is the easiest job. I would argue it's the most difficult. It's the yes. easiest one to get wrong. Just think about it. I kind of think also when you water is when you bond with your plant. Yes. Because it you're is, yeah, because yeah, you're one on one with it, and you and yeah. you see its progress, and you and you assess all the other jobs a gardener needs to do yeah. at that point, and so it's the most okay. important job. That's it's also therapeutic as well. I yeah, you're doing it every night, in which case. Which I used to do um, like way. four thousand pots in a nursery when I was an apprentice, and that got a bit tiresome sometimes. But but you're right, it is a bonding exercise, yeah. and you can you can do all your assessment. You're in the your moment, aren't yeah, you? much you're very much so. So I suppose yeah. I've got one more tip to ask for in a yes. while, tips, and that is I, yeah. you know, I recently did the HSBC uh, roof gardens. Oh, I designed yes, those, yeah. yeah. And it's very, very windy up there. Right. So I was wondering if you had yeah. any tips on, on that. Okay, yeah. Wind is, is a major issue. I mean, it's one of the potentially the biggest challenges, isn't it, to mm. the garden? Especially in the UK, I think, yeah. yeah. Definitely, because um, obviously, I mean, it can lower the temperature. It can cause damage and sorts of things like that. I'm, I live in a very windy spot. Yep. I'm, I'm, you know, 700 foot above sea level. So yep. what we've done is use is trees around the outside. So also I've used willow as a barrier. And then what I do as well is I use um, plants like gruesome artichokes around the outside of the plot mm. just to provide extra shelter. So it's multi-layered, yep. really. But the other thing I It's almost like agroforestry in a way, isn't it? Do you know it is? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is. And it's very free-spirited plants. Yeah, so yeah. I don't use crop rotation. Right. Permaculture in a way. That, yeah, because yeah. I used to, obviously, I, you know, I used to use crop rotation systems and I do that you know, meticulously. And it, to be honest with you, it always caused me a headache. But what I do now is I used, uh, use mixed planting 
um, in a way that just means I don't have to I don't have to follow that meticulously because I'm not draining one particular nutrient out yeah. of the soil. So things actually work in harmony. And the yeah. other thing I do yeah. actually as well, I grow plants on for longer. So for example, with certain brassicas like uh, Swiss chard and kales, you can actually grow them on for a few so years. So they're perennial by, by nature. Yeah. yeah, so you actually then you get, means you get a much bigger crop in yeah. the spring. It's almost like having seven plants in one. So you're grazing it in well. a way, are you? Grazing. You're growing them as perennials and you're grazing them rather than I whacking them in kale. drills and, and cropping them straight away. And, and I do a lot of self-seeding. A lot of plants are self-seeding as well. Yeah. So a lot of the weeds that pop up are actually seedlings yeah. that I can just take and plant elsewhere, yeah. which is helpful. Another thing I've started doing as well is when you want to obviously clear a space to, to put some new planting in, Rather than, say, for example, lifting a spent crop out the ground, what I do now is I actually cut it off at the surface because... What so you leave the rootstock in, the root ball in there? in because it's potentially got really beneficial nutrients yeah. and um, mycorrhizal fungi. Yes, and the yeah. thing is, because quite often it's because if you pull one out, if you look at the roots, they're covered in the... Um, in mycelium, in like what, yeah, mycelium, yeah. And it's taking that out of the soil, and obviously it's all about the soil. Mm. I mean, if you think ground. about it, it just makes perfect logic. Yeah. And if yeah. you take the idea of, you're almost like picture-perfect garden, yeah. if you imagine what a garden's supposed to look like, then everything is so very, very carefully controlled. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, fertiliser, obviously pesticides are being used. What you're doing is you're creating a space that's so needy and unresilient yes. that it's actually, it's expensive and it's also very, very vulnerable. So it's turning the idea of it on its head. Organic gardening is at the heart of this, yep. but it's also about allowing lots of wildlife to move in. And a lot of it is actually, it's about tuning in. Yeah. It's about tuning into what's already there with a little, there's some flourishes and other things that you can do around the side and yep. lots of ideas. But nature has a lot of the answers and trying to, to let nature in as much as possible. So we, we, we it's the other way around in a way, I suppose. We step in yeah. only when necessary, let, let it take its flow. We step yes. in when we want particular yeah. crops in certain places. So, yeah, yeah. I don't have an issue with um, things yeah. like pest build-up because, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much wildlife as yeah. well. There's lots of predators that will eat things like it's, it's, and slugs. And it's, I had raw beans and they got yeah. covered in black fly and I left it for three weeks and the ladybirds cleaned them up. So the, the answer will come along. Yeah, 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 it is, yeah. And, and the big the important thing yeah. is don't panic about it. So, you know, sometimes we get spots on our faces, yeah. don't we? It, but actually, I mean, we're here at St Faggins yeah. um, in Cardiff and they have displays of some of the peasant gardens, so the workers' gardens. Yes. And actually, they used to have weeds mixed in with their crops because it encouraged pollinating insects. You know, when I started gardening, yeah. we were poisoning those things. It was like, everything was like straight lines, Quickly bedding, you had to flick the sides, yeah. cut it. Everything was a meticulous and uh, controlled. Yeah. And I think that we've come a long way since then by the sound of it, Kim. And I think you're contributing to yeah. that immensely. And I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, so thank you. Thank you too. very much. Thank yeah. you. Thank right. you, Chris. in getting hold of Kim's book on climate change gardening, go to the website climatechangegarden.uk. So now it's time to open the Garden Organic post bag. Hannah, what have you got for us today? Well, I've got a couple of interesting, quite varied questions. The first is about gooseberry bushes. So um, someone's written in and said they have two very large gooseberry bushes, which are getting a bit straggly. Should they prune them? Chris, what would you say? Yeah, I would say that's a good idea. I like to keep my fruit bushes what I call open. We call the, the references maybe like a, a goblet, a very open palm sort of. So all this, do you want any central wood? You want the wood to be outward facing, really. You don't want any rubbing or crossing wood. 
So you want the air to circulate round the fruit bush, don't you? And I also like to prune out any older wood and encourage new growth. Do you agree with that, Sarah? Absolutely, and this is a perfect time to do it because I'm guessing by now you, the listener, <laughs> has picked your gooseberries and had a lovely gooseberry pie, so the bush is probably empty of fruit. So this is a good time to be doing it. Cutting out any dead wood any as well. Any dead wood, crossing wood, rubbing wood. So, so it's an open plant, very open plant that the air can move through and circulate round. So you want it to be almost like a praying hand, moving outwards, I suppose. So I would probably prune to outward-facing notes, which are the little growth buds on the plant. So you're not getting a lot of mangled, tangled wood in the centre of the plant, basically. I always like to think of a wine glass as a shape. A wine glass or a goblet, goblet, is it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's quite nice. And you can see if you go out into Wrighton and look at our orchards, you'll see how our orchard trees are very open, almost palm-like with the, spread, the branches spreading out with a very open centre. And if you're wondering, this would also work with red currants and white currants, but not black currants. They have a different fruiting system and you need to prune them later in the year when they're dormant. That would be late autumn or winter even. Okay, thank you. Um, Now the next question. Someone's written in and said that they've noticed that other people in their allotments are using old tyres as containers. Is this a good idea? Sarah, what would you say? Personally, I wouldn't, and it's not just the aesthetics. I think there are real problems with old rubber tyres. When tyres are manufactured, they have some quite dangerous chemicals in them. Um, Cadmium, lead, styrene, these are all added to the tyre to manufacture it. As the tyre degrades, whether it's in water or sun or whatever atmospheric conditions there are, these will leach out into the soil, either into the soil which is within the tyre and you're growing in it, or into the soil beneath the tyre. So personally, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take that risk. Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree with that totally. And I think I remember going to the Allotment Society to speak and they were very anti-tyre, if my memory serves me right. But you certainly don't want to put them as a tyre that you found on a dump out and plant into it. You will just put toxins into your soil. If you were thinking of using them, you'd put them on hard standing. I would, I'd buy them that had been professionally cleaned, maybe with a jet wash or something. I'd then paint them acrylic with acrylic paint, maybe some nice bright colours, and stand them on concrete. I wouldn't put them on top of soil. And the most important thing, I'd line them so your soil is not contact with the rubber itself. So it's a debatable whether it's organic to use tyres or not, but if you were going to use them, like for instance in schools, they're very cheap and easy to use, I would follow that advice, acrylic paint, lime, hard standing, and that means you could probably just get away with it then. And probably, to be really safe, not grow food in them. Yes. Use them for flowers, ornamentals. And what would you line them with, anything in particular? Well, it's the dreaded old plastic, I would say. Yeah, nice heavy weight plastic, and make sure you'd have to make sure it drains, so you'd have to punch some holes in it as well. Probably line the bottom of the tyres with some gravel or something like that, so it drained all right. So, um, I mean, if you can avoid tyres, there are other options, is probably what we would agree yeah, on. Yeah, Chris, it? you must yeah. have seen some pretty spectacular sights. Uh, I love allotments because it just. Yeah, nobody's paid for anything. <laughs> and just, the, the innovation's incredible, especially my one with all these old separated boys. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, obviously on my allotment, if you, it was very overgrown, so I've used old bits of wood I've got out of skips and on the site to make raised beds, not massively raised, but it just contains the area and makes it more workable. I've seen old baths being used. That's quite, quite a common one. I've seen sinks. Um, I've, I've even seen dustbins that have, had, that have been put drainage in and they used to grow them for potatoes. You can really innovate. The, the point is, is that you make sure they're not toxic, you don't use anything toxic and it drains okay because if, if it doesn't drain, you're going to get waterlogged soil, you won't get any grub. 
And I've used an old chest of drawers before now. Very handy that when you pull the drawers out and use them separately. It was an old chest of drawers. Mm. It was made of wood. Yes, it gradually, eventually rotted away. But it made a very nice little mini section of, of raised beds. As long as you've got substrate, something to grow in, good soil. And obviously, because it's a confined space, it probably helped to add a bit of liquid feed for the course of the season, just because you're supplementing, because there's a restricted space. Actually, talking about um, crazy containers, I actually saw recently someone had done a window box in the back of their car and planted pansies. So. Well, while they were still driving it along. Yeah, they were still driving it. It was in Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> so anything is possible. Okay, so our last question is quite a broad one. I think we could probably all sit and talk about this for days. Um, someone's written in and asked, what are the best flowers to grow to attract bees? Sarah. Well, I think it is a very good question to ask, Hannah, because the garden needs pollinators. And it's not just bees, it's other beneficial insects like hoverflies, wasps, believe it or not, flies, butterflies. These all act as pollinators and they're all part of the ecosystem within your garden. Um, what are the best flowers? Those with a simple open aspect, whether it's the daisy family or whether it's the umbellifera, which things like carrots and coriander and fennel, these all have nice open flowers which the insect can access the pollen on the anthers and stamens within the blossom. Would you agree? With I, absolutely. I think the thing you want to avoid really is we, we, we very heavily hybridise some plants like begonias, summer bedding, begonias, petunias, and they tend to have big, blousy, double, triple flowers, and that's not really accessible to a pollinator. So maybe avoid those or grow them in a different place if you want to attract bees and pollinators. Interestingly, it's our native wildflowers that are actually the best for insects. Simple things like foxglove, forget-me-not, poppies, these all have this open aspect that we're talking about. Coventry Uni, who are our neighbours at Wrighton, did a, a research project on which are the best blooms for bees, and they found that of all these wildflowers, the three top, the three most popular with bees where they hung out was viper's bugloss, teasel, and toad flax. So it's sort of plants you find on a verge, really. Exactly. Yeah. They're probably not something you're going to be sowing in your garden, but they are, as I say, they have this attractiveness and this ease of access for the bee to dip in and get the pollen. Is there anything in the colour? I've heard sort of people say that the blues and the purples... Yes, blend. that's very true, Hannah, and that was another outcome from the research mm -hmm. from Uni. Another thing I would mention is don't just think of flowers as ornamentals. I've noticed in my herb patch that, for instance, the chive flowers and the marjoram flowers... Bees can't get yeah, that I've, I've, I've got a few plants. I think also you've got to remember the longevity of the season. So you want stuff out there early in spring that's flowering. The hardy annuals, I know things like comfrey flower quite early, don't they? And I've got a wild allotment next to me. It's full of comfrey and you can hear it buzzing from 30 feet away. Absolutely covered in... And things like calendula are quite good, these sort of plants that you might companion plant in amongst the allotment. I think one plant always amazes me. I used to have a big one right outside my front door in London, that's lavender, and that was like a that was like a bee rave going on on that. It was absolutely covered in it, and I think you know you'd have to you really could hear it. That was really really popular. And also remember, late in the season, there'll be bees and butterflies etc. around that will want pollen. So plant something that's going to flower later. Sedum spectabilis or the ice plant is a great one for that because that will flower September into October. So you're providing pollen nectar very late in the season. I think that's a very good point, Chris. That I think insects who come out of hibernation early are desperate to feed up, to get the glucose or whatever it is that they get in the nectar. And so things like dandelion flowers, mm. 
Don't get rid of them. Don't cut them down. They are vital for these insects. Got plenty of them. So what can I do now or what can the member do now? Is there anything they can sow? I think, to be honest, it's a little bit late to be sowing. There's n- I mean, there's no reason why not and why not get a packet of seeds and scatter them if you've got the room and see what comes up. Depends entirely on the summer that we have and the conditions that we have. But it's not too late to think about planning for this. As we said, plan to have within your growing area a succession of flowering plants to cover from early spring right through until late autumn. So you, and also you can have a look into what perennial plants are good for, for throughout the season. And um, also, I think also you can maybe, if you could, like, have a look at see if you can buy plug plants. There might be wildflowers yes. that are bought in as plugs, so you might be able to get them online, etc., sent through to you and just put them in as baby plants, take care of them and see if they're growing. Or nip down and get a lavender bush and have a bee rave in yeah. the garden. <laughs> I like the sounds of that. Um, presumably we've got information on our website. Yes, Hannah, you're right. There's plenty of that. If you just go to the Garden Organic website and search for pollinators, flowers for bees, bees, it's all there under the search engine. We've got plenty of pages on that. And the Coventry University research that you mentioned, Blooms for Bees, they've got their That's own also website. There on, they've got their own website, but it's also on ours. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it for this month. As Hannah reminded me, there's plenty of advice on the Garden Organic website, gardenorganic.org.uk. And if you want to support our work by becoming a member, it costs less than £3 a month. As Chris would no doubt say, you couldn't get a pint of beer for that price. Join us and you'll be part of the growing organic movement. And we can provide you with a personalised help and advice service on all your organic growing queries. Next month is our bumper August holiday episode. We thought it would be fun to concentrate on organic food. We talked to a food analyst and a chef to see if organic food really is better for you. And we'll share some recipes from your plot to plate. Never say you have too many courgettes. Until then, goodbye and happy, happy organic gardening wherever you are. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.